I am so glad that you guys are here with me this morning. I'm so glad we get to be together. I think I've told you guys before, most of you know, that when I was growing up, we moved around a lot. Uh, I counted when I was getting ready for this, this sermon, and it was... I think it was 13 different times we moved, but I was at nine different schools from the time that I was, you know, from K through 12, like nine different schools that I went to different times. It it might be 10. There's a couple of those younger years that are a little bit fuzzy. But the point is, is that I got to have that wonderful experience of being the new kid nine different times. And several of those moves, not all of them, but several of them happened during the middle of the school year. And one of the things that that meant was that I got the joy of standing in front of 25 strangers mumbling some kind of half-hearted response to the teacher's well-intentioned but torturous request for me to tell the class a little bit about yourself And so those of you who know me and wonder why I'm so traumatic about um, icebreakers, that is why. Because when I was 10 and I had to tell the class about myself, that's horrifying. But so I got to do that several different times. Uh, Another thing that happened because we would come in the middle of the school year when school was already in session is there were some things that I had to miss out on because they were kind of already in progress uh, one time there was a, an all-class production, like a little play that the class was putting on, and um, I came in kind of on the tail end when they were getting ready to perform, and there were a couple of practices, and so I sat out a lot and watched them get ready. It was too late for there to be a part for me or anything like that. I also started a new school my senior year of high school, and I did not go on my senior trip, and in retrospect, like I'm really okay with that because I don't really... You know, I didn't, there was a couple people I liked in in high school, but not very many. I'm glad I didn't have to go to Florida with most of those kids, but um, they had been fundraising since freshman year, and there was no way for me to come in and kind of catch up. So, you know, that was another thing that I got left out of. But I want to tell you guys about one of the most memorable experiences that I had of being left out of something, and this happened in seventh grade. Seventh grade, we, uh, we moved. I started a new school. It was a couple months into the school year. It was Coal City was the name of the town that we moved to. And in seventh grade, gym class. I got to gym class on the first day that I was there as the new kid. And I was so excited because I was, I was coming into, they were on the tail end of a unit in, in physical education on archery. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. It was like way cooler than like dodgeball and floor hockey and basketball were the go-tos at the school I was coming from. So I was like, wow, archery, that's amazing and so much fun. And I'm so excited I I get to experience this. But alas, my hopes were dashed because the teacher decided that since I had not been present for the safety portion of the unit... That, I don't know, he couldn't trust 12-year-old me not to point the sharp thing at other people. So, like, I had to sit out and was not allowed to participate in archery. So that was a bummer. 
so I remember, so there was, there was a field that we were in, obviously practicing. The targets were set up in one part of the field. And where, where the group was kind of gathered, they had a lot of those big boulders like they put so that people won't drive their car onto the field. You guys know what I'm talking about? They're like this tall or something like that, big boulders. And I was bored standing there in my little ridiculous gym uniform that they made us wear. But I was bored. So I, I climbed up on top of one of those boulders and, and not only was it something to do, but it, it allowed me to kind of see over the crowd and see what was going on, if the other people were hitting the targets and whatnot. Now, I've never been accused of being graceful. And so I, I, before I knew it, I was not paying attention to what my feet were doing, and they went out from under me in the front, and I slipped down, and I banged the back of my head on that boulder, and it hurt really, really bad, really hurt really bad. But I didn't think that anyone had seen me. That's the best when you do something stupid and you kind of look around and you're like, no, I'm good. I didn't, I'm just going to walk off like nobody noticed. So I thought I was good to go. I was in a lot of pain, but I was good at hiding that. So that's what I did. But before long, I noticed that there were, you know, groups of people, you know, and, there, you know, somebody be elbowing somebody else, and they were kind of pointing at me. And I thought, well, crap, you know, they did see me fall. So now not only am I the new kid, but they watched me do something stupid and embarrassing. But actually, no one had seen me fall. What they were pointing at was the fact that I had blood running down the back of my head and soaking into my shirt. So I had, I had not only hit my head, but I had cut my head pretty good. Eventually, the teacher noticed the pointing, noticed that I was bleeding, and sent me with a couple of other girls to go find the nurse's office. And I will never, as long as I live, forget the look on the face of that poor woman when the gym students that are doing the archery unit walked into her office. Okay? She went white as a ghost, and and she was trying to stay cool, but she was like, okay, okay, oh my, okay, okay, well first, first tell me did the arrow break off or did you guys pull it out? Like she was so sure that I was shot in the head that she was flipping out. She'd been waiting for that day for like six weeks. She was super relieved to find out that really I was just clumsy. So that's not quite as bad. No head wound. So when I think back on the episode of my life, like I find it retrospectively hilarious. I mean, nobody thinks it's funny when you fall and do something stupid in seventh grade, but... But more than that, that memory of how I felt in that class excluded from that activity because somebody was afraid that I didn't know what I was doing, that illustrates really nicely something that John Wimber, who is the founder of the Vineyard Movement, something that he said he felt was the, one of the biggest weaknesses of the modern church. And so today, as we are concluding our series on Vineyard 101, the culture and the beliefs and the practices of the Vineyard Church, uh, we're going to spend some time talking about Wimber's response to that posture and that weakness and what has become one of the foundational values of the Vineyard Church, and that is that everybody gets to play. Everybody gets to play. The reality of most of the Western church, church with a capital C, not necessarily implicating you all in this, 
in this criticism, but the reality is that in most places, the church functions a lot like my seventh grade gym class. Everybody does not get to play. Right? Am I right? And really, like, the reasoning for that is pretty much the same. We've made knowledge, academic, intellectual knowledge, a prerequisite for ministry. We've said that you need information before you can put your faith into practice. We've said that you must learn before you do. And so what has happened over time is that ministry has been reduced and it has been compartmentalized into something like a a professional service that is provided by a professional clergy person, right? I get a paycheck, so I'm the professional clergy person, right? And the rest of the church, the rest of the members are relegated to the status of consumers of that service and observers of that service. Much like seventh grade me, standing off to the side, watching as the informed people participated in something that I was excluded from. In many churches, the pastor is seen as the only person that is qualified to teach, to preach, to pray for people, to visit the sick in the hospital, to sit with people who are struggling and offer counsel, to baptize people, to marry people, to bury people, and to evangelize. Which I think, just as a side note a little bit, is probably the reason that so many pastors burn out. And, and the statistic is something like only one in ten people that set out in the beginning of their working life with the intention of, of being a pastor, only one in ten will retire as a pastor. And, and the, the average length of time that, that a pastor spends at any one given church is somewhere in the neighborhood of, of four years is the average. There's so much burnout. Because rather than filling one role in a body of believers, they're trying to do all of the work alone. And that's not the way that God intended for the church to work. God has a way better way of doing this, a way better way. Because it was originally his idea, actually, that everyone gets to play. So I want you guys to turn with me this morning to the book of Ephesians. We're going to read from chapter 4, and we're going to look at some guidance that Paul, who was an apostle and a church planter in the early church, this is, this is guidance that he was giving to the church at Ephesus about this very sort of thing. Ephesians chapter 4, Bible's in the windowsills, Wi-Fi, so feel free to pull out your phone. I won't know if you're on Facebook or Bible Gateway, so it's all good. And the words will be on the screen behind me. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. It says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers... To equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up. Until we all reach unity in the faith, and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure 
of the fullness of Christ. Verse 14, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body, the body of him who is the head, that is Christ, and from him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. It's amazing, isn't it, what we find in God's word? If we take the time to read some of the things that it actually says, it turns out John Wimber was right. John Wimber was right. The role of the minister is to equip the church. To equip the church. Verses 11 and 12 tell us that the roles of pastor and teacher were given to us by Jesus himself so that they could teach us what we need to know in order to, as many translations put this, I love the phrasing of, do the work of the ministry. Because we should all have unity in the faith. And we should all become mature. Because we all have the same potential to attain the full measure of Christ, as Paul says, which means to have access to every single aspect of his image and his likeness. We all have that potential. Because after all, the role of the minister is to equip the church. The role of the church is to do the stuff. It's to do the stuff. Everybody gets to play. There are no spiritual superstars. Everyone, every single one of us is capable and called to follow Jesus and to be his disciples. What does it mean, that word disciple, that's not a word that we use really a lot in, in modern times as much. And if we do, it's usually in some kind of culty kind of a way. So what does it mean to be a disciple? There's lots of implications of it, but I really love the simple way that Dallas Willard, who's a favorite theologian and author of mine, Dallas Willard put it this way in his book called The Divine Conspiracy. He said, we must develop a straightforward presentation in word and life of the reality of life, our life, now under God's rule, through reliance on the word and the person of Jesus. In this way, we can naturally become his students or apprentices. And this is the part I want you to hear. We can learn from him how to live our lives as he would live them if he were we. And we can enter into his eternal kind of life now. We can learn from him how to live our lives as he would live them if he were we. How would Jesus live your life if he were you? 
That's the question that we're looking to answer when we say, like we do every week, that our goal here is to become a people who follow Jesus everywhere. We're saying that each one of you, in your own life, in your own context, with your family, with your coworkers, with the strangers that you run into on the street as you go about your business, buying your groceries and shopping for shoes and whatever it is that you do during the day, you are capable and called to do the work of the ministry. To pray for healing when your kids are sick. To offer counsel and comfort to your friends who are struggling with things in their lives. To invite people that you meet into your life and into your experience of faith to to be able to share with them what difference does it make that Jesus is a part of my life. And to invite friends who have no spiritual community to come and join us at this table. To invite people into what we have here. You guys show up every week. So there are people that are dying to have the kind of community and relationship that we have here. It's not any more my job than it is yours to fill these empty seats in this auditorium. These seats are reserved for your friends, for your family, for the people that you run into in the grocery store, your neighbors and your coworkers. And if you don't feel equipped, because sometimes we hear messages like this and we think, oh, God, that's so, it's just so much. It's so much. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I'm not sure how to proceed. If you don't feel equipped, you know what? That's okay. Don't hear this with shame. But understand that is what discipleship is. That's what it's about, is becoming equipped learning more and more how to do these things, moving toward an ever-increasing ability to live your life as Jesus would live it if he were you, the kind of life that he designed you to live. Because remember what Paul said. We're going to look at verses 14 through 16 one more time. When we attain the full measure of Christ, what is the result? What did Paul say? Verse 14 says, then we will no longer be infants. He's talking about growing up and being mature. So we won't be like like children anymore, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, what will happen, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. 
the whole church with Christ as our head grows and is built up when we all work together. When we all work together, this is how the kingdom of God advances on the earth. It is through the body of Christ working together, each one doing their part. So not only does everyone get to play, but we need everyone to play. Everyone is needed. You are needed. There are no exceptions. No exceptions. So this morning, as we conclude, I want to do a couple of things. A couple of things is I just want to take a moment and I want to pray. And what I'm going to ask you to do is to maybe close your eyes. You don't have to. And like we say, there's nothing super spiritual about closing your eyes. It just helps with distractions. It helps kind of, kind of center us. And, and so we're not you know, worried about what the person next to us is doing. Just close your eyes for just a second. And I want to pray. For God, I, I really feel strongly that there are many of us who are living very busy lives. And I'm sure that most of you would agree that your lives are busy and full. And we rush from thing to thing because we're trying to be responsible. We're trying to be efficient with our time. We're trying to, you know, be productive human beings. There are people in our lives that God would have us to notice. People that are hurting people that are lonely, people that need someone to talk to, to notice them, to listen to them. And, and, and we chafe against that sometimes because our lives are already full. And so we think, well, I don't have time to like become your best friend and you know, spend, you know, you can't come over to my house every day or I can't text you 15 times a day, so I'm not even going to bother with the connection because I don't want to have one more thing that I feel like I'm, I'm letting someone down. But I just want to ask you to take kind of a deep breath there and just let go of the expectation that you would put on yourself to make this kind of thing more than it needs to be. Because sometimes just a moment of connection, two minutes of looking someone in the eyes and letting them know that they've been seen can change the trajectory of their lives 